0: This is Committable. In season one, we did an episode about outpatient commitments. That episode was originally about 90 minutes long, Because I spent several weeks bordering on obsession, reading hundreds of pages of research reports and going point by point to try and explain what that research indicated. When committable producer Michelle Stockman finally heard that 90-minute episode, she basically said, nope. And she was right. I had gotten so far into the details that I had lost perspective. And what was produced was really, really boring. But I still feel that this is an important issue for us to be talking about. So for this bonus episode, we are going to dive back into outpatient commitments, also known as assisted outpatient treatment. And listen to some of the conversations that got cut from that episode, starting with an interview with Eric Smith.
1: My name is Eric Smith. I am a graduate of something called assisted outpatient treatment, also known as AOT and the assisted outpatient treatment, essentially what it does is it stops criminalizing mental illness and replaces it with a civil court proceeding mechanism that gets people the treatment and care that they need. Uh, Like myself, I needed that treatment and care. Full well recognizing that a jail is not an appropriate place. The criminal justice system is not an appropriate place for someone to get the treatment they need. And, um, Every time I'm, I'm asked to like unpack what AOT is, I'm like, God, how do I do that without talking for an hour straight? So I'll leave the questions, more questions about that to you. When did you first encounter AOT and what was that process like? It's relevant to give you some background leading up to right around what that time looked like in my life. I was decompensating quite terribly in uh, my 20s uh, leading up to my first hospitalization, which was uh, followed by an arrest of, of me in 2009 this arrest, it was a nonviolent offense. And my parents, who recognized that mentally I was just the worst I had ever been, they contacted one of my uh, psychiatrists that I had had. And he said, if you want your son, if you want Eric to get the care and treatment that he needs, the best bet for him right now is if he's arrested, and then hopefully a psych bed opens up and a judge, and the stars align that everything comes together, where he gets out of jail and gets transferred to a hospital. I was arrested for trespassing at my parents' house, uh, jailed for a month, uh, well in the worst state of mind that I've ever experienced. Uh, not not receiving medication, not receiving treatment. It was just it was just horrible. It was a mess. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, not on enemy if I happened to have any. It was just it was not a great experience. So, uh, right as I was about to be released from the jail um, luckily a psych bed opened up for me right as the jail was about to release me I'm stabilized there for about three months then as soon as I'm stable enough to enter into society uh, according to the the doctor on the inside of the you know the, managing me on the inpatient side of things transferred me to an outpatient order which is the assisted outpatient treatment that I mentioned at the beginning And uh, this assisted outpatient treatment program is also a law. And it's important I mention that because when people talk about assisted outpatient treatment, there are assisted outpatient treatment laws within whatever geographic region. For example, California, it's different from county to county. Some are statewide, and then the cities implement them differently. There's a few states in the Northeast that don't have any AOT laws. Regardless of any of that, no AOT program exists unless the law exists. So I tell people when they're like, wow, what was your experience like being in you know, an, an inpatient in a psych hospital? And I say, uh, well, it was lucky because despite some of the horrors that I experienced on the inpatient side of things, and we can unpack those if you're curious, the fact that I lost sanity here in San Antonio, Texas, versus one of the states in the Northeast that doesn't have AOT, I hit the lottery because I wasn't pushed through jail and treated like a criminal from end to end. Eventually, you know, uh, uh, the AOT judge and treatment team uh, on which the laws are based intervened. And I got care and treatment instead of, you know, languishing and decompensating behind uh, jail bars. So um, yeah, it's something. I, I, I grew up in Southern California as a child and had I stayed there, my outcome would not likely have been as positive as it is now had I gotten ill in, in let's say, Sa- uh, San Diego versus here in San Antonio. It's just I'm, I'm a product of being lucky to be in the right place in the right time that had laws to help me.
0: The AOT process involves a court order. So as the person seeking treatment, how does that court order help you get treatment? Some
1: version of that question is probably the one of the most asked questions I hear about AOT so to compare it against a criminal order which people are much more familiar with even if they're not lawyers or part of the criminal justice system we know that on the criminal justice side of things there's a judge and then you've got like a plaintiff side a defendant side people are trying to prove without a reasonable doubt that something did or did not happen that someone did or did not do something how that's resolved is will a party end up being guilty and the supposed deterrent for criminal matters is you will end up facing some sort of sentence, whether it's a fine, uh, being behind bars, uh, probation. And there's this sort of threat of you will be punished if you do X, Y, or Z within our society because a nation of laws. That's the criminal side of things. That is not equipped to get someone treatment and care because what is a judge gonna do on the criminal justice side of things? Say, okay, it's clear that we've had a we brought in a psychiatrist, we've brought in experts to verify if you, that you do indeed qualify for whatever diagnosis it is. What's that judge supposed to do then using the criminal justice system? Say, hey, all right, yeah, you're, you're mentally ill, so we're going to put you behind bars uh, because you did something, but you're mentally ill. Or we're, we're going to say that you're, you're insanity and remand you to a psych hospital where you'll, you'll spend all the rest of your days because you're a danger to society. Okay, those are things that happen on the criminal side. The AOT laws and the AOT civil proceedings are so far from that. Many of them, first of all, don't even take place in what, lo- what you would picture in your head a courtroom to look like one of the first things that i saw when i would show up for my aot hearings is uh, a waiting area that had a table full of like muffins and like bananas fruit to eat there was juice water and it was available at no cost to the people showing up there at their hearings. so it was you know food so let's show you what the hearing looks like now so when my name was called much like any others who was a part of the aot hearing in my area we walk in and it doesn't look like a courtroom it's a conference room that's about the size of let's say like a master bedroom in in, in like a, a middle class house and it's got a big conference table there's a judge at one end of it i've got my assigned social worker in there i've got an attorney in there making sure my rights aren't violated during the hearing uh there is a bailiff there but you know every, everyone everyone's dressed business casual it's not, not very few people if any ever i saw show up in a suit and tie and they took great lengths to make sure people coming into these hearings knew that not only did this not look like a criminal court, but it was not a criminal court. They were there to help. They, they were there to make sure that we were getting the care and treatment I needed. And what the hearing sounded like was the judge saying, Eric, are you taking your meds? And I'd be like, "You know, yes, I'm taking my meds. And he's like, well, we know what's going on in your life. How are you feeling? Are there side effects? And it was really, person-centered, solution-focused. Let's come together as a team and figure out uh, how, how to get you to where you wanna be, accomplish your goals. And that is not typically what a criminal justice court sounds like. So I'm trying to do a good job of saying like, here is what criminal justice looks like. Here's what civil proceedings look like. And the focus is not on threats. The focus is not on punishment. If something happens, because what we're dealing what we're dealing with in an AOT court is the goal here is result getting someone to a healthier point where they can live gainful as gainful and productive and as happy and as healthy as a life as they can. There's almost no overlap between criminal justice and that. And when people are like, okay, okay, so with criminal justice. People are worried about, uh, you know, being sent to jail or paying fines. So where's the accountability on the civil side of things? Like, how could this possibly work if everyone's getting together and essentially there's this civil kumbaya going on of how can we help people? The judge is involved. Like, why would someone want to listen to a judge if there's no threat? And there has been plenty of evidence, not just anecdotal at this point, but plenty of evidence now for the judge that I had here a judge that I've spoken with who does an AOT court in Ohio, a judge I've spoken with who does AOT courts in Nevada and California. And what they're seeing is about a 90% group of people who are in their programs, who don't end back up being hospitalized again after they're stabilized. They don't end up back behind bars. They do continue taking their medication. And this boggles people's minds because they're like, if there's no accountability and no threat for the judge to say, hey, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm gonna send you to jail. Why would someone want to listen to what a judge has to say? And I look back on my experience and I say, well, it was clear they wanted to help me the entire way. And they taught me the importance of Not only taking my meds, but showing me how that connects with managing my mental illness, where when I do what I can to manage my illness and the symptoms associated with it, look what I can accomplish when I'm sane. Since then, I graduated in the top 10% of my class with a BA in psychology. I'm currently a graduate student who's had a 4.0 GPA throughout my entire uh, graduate school career thus far. And uh, this time next year, I'll be graduated with my master's in social work. And these are all things that are an offshoot of my mental illness being treated through civil proceedings rather than criminal proceedings. It just can't be overstated enough. And I'm not just one person saying, wow, you know what? It's important that this is civil and not criminal. Because whether an individual has the capacity to understand whether, what the criminal justice system or the civil justice system is, is of less significance than the fact of how they are treated and how successful AOT can be when a strong program is built on a strong law to help people not treat them as criminals based on their illness.
0: This distinction that Eric is highlighting, the distinction between criminal and civil, is important. Involuntary outpatient commitments involve civil proceedings and are not intended to be punitive. However, involuntary inpatient commitments also involve civil proceedings and are also not intended to be punitive. But just because it's a civil proceeding doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. With outpatient commitments, if you refuse to comply with a treatment plan, you can be detained inpatient for evaluation. Not complying with an outpatient commitment can literally result in police officers showing up at your home and involuntarily bringing you to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. In my last hospitalization, I was allowed a hearing to try and appeal a psychiatrist's petition to have me committed to a psych ward. That hearing was a civil procedure. I was given an attorney, who I was allowed to speak to for a few minutes, and I got to appear before a judge, not in a courtroom, but in an empty conference room in a hospital. The psychiatrist petitioning to have me committed ordered that I be confined to a wheelchair as part of my treatment. So I was given a court hearing, A civil procedure where I spoke to an attorney for a few minutes before being wheeled before a judge while a psychiatrist towered over me and insisted that I was mentally unfit to be free. The judge sided with the psychiatrist. And I was detained on that psych ward involuntarily for five weeks. Just because it's a civil procedure doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. I asked Eric what he would say to someone living with a serious mental illness who is afraid that they could be court ordered into treatment that they don't want.
1: I was one of them. I didn't want to be ordered into treatment because like I told you earlier, um, nothing had worked up to that point and I was confident nothing was going to work. So I thought there's two parts to this. Have you heard the term anosognosia before? Yes. Okay, so that's one of the components where I had convinced myself that if all of these medicines that I had tried and all of them didn't do what they're designed to do, I must not have what they're designed to treat. And on paper, like I've told that, and when I speak publicly, people are like, how could you not know you're ill? And I'm like, I was actually making it a very fact-based thing. It wasn't a far reach because if all of these pills that have been put onto the market are designed to do X, Y, and Z, and when I take them, it doesn't do that, I must not have them. Maybe I have some character defects that make me look mentally ill. I, I don't know what it is, but I sure don't have mental illness because these, all of these meds don't work. So part of it was anosognosia. It also got to a point where when I absolutely was delusional and very clearly mentally ill, I was past a breaking point where I could recognize I was ill. I felt fine, but I didn't have uh, the insight to recognize that staying awake for three straight days, showing up unannounced at my FBI's local headquarters, which that happened. That happened. Like I, I delivered a very psychotic rant to FBI agents and um, walked away from the whole thing. And I was like, you know, I did my civic duty as someone that needs to report threats against world leaders. And none of this was real. I mean, yes, I did go to the FBI and say all this. So there was a time where even when I was sane enough to see that the pills didn't work and I thought, okay, well, I must not have mental illness if they didn't work. There was also the part of I'm not ill, even though I'm very clearly ill. And These are the types of individuals that if they don't understand they're ill or somehow some sort of foundation on which to support a logical argument as to why they don't believe they're ill. I see it quite a bit uh, with myself and through uh, families uh, that I speak with about their loved ones where they don't want to be involved in treatment. And so for other individuals that are, are at those depths where they are being held hostage by their own mind, I am of the understanding it's similar to sleepwalking where... You can't logically argue someone who's sleepwalking is conscious. Like you may see them walking around. Uh, you may see them like opening a fridge and eating food. But if you tell them they did any of that over that, they'd be like, I have no recollection of any of this. I didn't do any of these things. It's similar for people with serious mental illness. Yes, their eyes are open. They may be voicing opposition to receiving treatment. But if the SMI is such where their their mind is being held hostage, just like in an ER, if someone were to lose consciousness because they can't breathe and doctors step in and they're like, oh, this person, I have to intubate this person. I have to reassess how breathing. These are choices being made by medical experts in an ER and you will never find a doctor. You will never find a reasonable doctor saying, okay, uh, this patient's in an ER, passed out, not breathing. I'm going to wait till they wake back up to ask if they want to be intubated. I'm not going to violate their rights. They may not want to be intubated. I'll just wait here patiently until they wake back up. Yeah, I'll, I'll just hang tight. That's insane, no one would ever do that. I view serious mental illness similarly. No medical expert looking at someone who's being held hostage by their own mind, all of their, their thoughts and actions are being entirely dictated by an illness to which they're either unaware of or can't control. Medical experts, same way as in an ER, someone can't breathe, steps in, stabilizes someone. They're not gonna wait for that person to hurt themselves or hurt someone else or reach a point where it, it become, they become so far gone that they don't ever really reach a point Of some sort of stability or sanity again. I'm able to equate those two because I've been in an ER where people had to make choices on my behalf because I wasn't awake. At the depths of my SMI, it's the same thing. I wasn't conscious to approve, I couldn't make a risk benefit analysis. Uh, I had to leave that to the medical experts who understood what was going on.
0: It's a great example someone in an ER, unconscious, because that's objective, that's easy to see improve. But I think at the heart of debate around commitment laws is the subjective. What if someone gets it wrong?
1: I, I am not a doctor. I am familiar with the Hippocratic Oath. I've read it on more than one occasion because I want to know what drives medical professionals. And there's a lot within it, but the most common phrase we're all familiar with is to do no harm. The slightly more wordy approach is to do the least amount of harm and the most amount of good because it's, it's not, often not, and in situations like this, where do no harm it's not clear there is a lot of subjectivity with that like what is harmful about this so then you move on to the next step of most amount of good and the least amount of harm and if you see someone suffering and it's not subjective where like i mean they're saying all kinds of stuff that doesn't exist like oh my god god is right next to me they're telling me that i like this uh or like you know i'm hearing these voices in my head i have to follow every word it is that they say that's not subjective. You're being presented with objective information that the person in front of you is not participating in the same reality that's the consensus of other people who luckily aren't experiencing mental illness. So, in that scenario, you know that letting that individual continue to be guided entirely by torment and torture and it's very clear they're being tortured and tormented by all of these things that don't exist, that is harmful you see someone being tormented and controlled and held hostage right in front of you. To do nothing about that is at least, at the very least, being an accomplice. And that individual's misfortune with being continued to be tormented. That's at the very least. At most, you are actively participating in making a decision to let them continue to be tormented by themselves when you know it's something medical doing it. Something medical is doing this that, that can be addressed. That's not subjective. That's the reality of things.
0: In all of the situations you just mentioned, the first thing a physician is likely to do is detain that person inpatient for evaluation. So there are already laws that say in these situations, detain that person inpatient for evaluation, but assisted outpatient treatment is only for people who don't meet the criteria for inpatient hospitalization. So, how does AOT fit into that? I'm glad you asked because of all of these anecdotes
1: I've shared with you thus far, I'm about to provide you with factual data. So, Schwartz et al, 1999. Full disclosure: Doctor Schwartz out of Duke. I, I love this guy. Like, I, I had the good fortune of sharing ground transportation with him once, but he happens to be one of the foremost uh, experts in AOT. He heads up the psych, uh, psychiatry over at Duke on the East, over at uh, Duke University and his research has shown, and it's been confirmed as such by looking at data since the time he released his uh, research in 1999, that individuals on an AOT order less than six months, I'm going to read this to you, word for it, and I actually have it pulled up right now, Swartz et al. 1999 shows, <coughs> I'm quoting here, individuals whose outpatient commitment order lasted six months or fewer regardless of the intensity of services received, we're as likely as those who received no outpatient commitment to return to the hospital, have multiple hospitalizations, and to have longer lengths of stays. And here's the reason I'm reading this right now. An AOT order, we, we see that if we're placing an AOT order at a minimum of six months or a little longer, that sort of removes the gray area and questioning of will AOT be effective and where does it fit into the equation? Where it fits into the equation is, is someone sane enough to not require inpatient hospitalization, if that's a good checkbox, if we put individuals in a six-month minimum AOT program, their outcomes are astounding, statistically significant findings when you compare it against the population of people who either A, haven't had an AOT order, or B, we're on a a shorter than six-month AOT order. So I wanna make sure I understand your question correctly because the reason I brought that up was where does AOT fit into this and how do we know when someone is a good fit for it and it will be effective. What we know is if someone's stable enough to be on an AOT order and not be hospitalized, let's put them on it. We know that if we put them on a minimum of six months and compare it to the results that aren't, we're looking at actual data. We're being objective. We're seeing data that shows here are outcomes for six months or longer. Here are outcomes for six months or shorter. And we see on paper, all subjectivity aside about whether you're pro or against AOT, it produces desirable
0: outcomes. The Swartz et al. randomized controlled trial that Eric is citing is a study that was led by Marvin Swartz and Jeff Swanson, both affiliated with Duke University, and is probably the most commonly cited randomized controlled trial on outpatient commitments. To better understand this study, I spoke with Tom Burns.
2: Okay, my name is Tom Burns. I'm what's called Emeritus Professor of Social Psychiatry at the University of Oxford which means that I've retired about six years ago. And I suppose the relevance here is that for 30 or 40 years, I ran a community psychiatric service initially as a full-time clinician, but then as years went on as a clinician doing research. And in that, I've been, I suppose, a strong advocate of community-based care. And by community-based, I don't just mean out of hospital. In fact, ever since my first psychiatric job in the early 1970s i've done all my assessments in patients homes and usually with their families and taught all my juniors to do the same so it's a, a domiciliary based uh, community care model and it it tended to be relatively very acceptable to patients pretty acceptable to general practitioners and generally resulted in fewer admissions because the more you know about somebody's total network, the less anxious both of you feel. So you, you didn't have to admit people because you didn't know enough about them. And uh, I suppose because it became relatively successful, uh, that drove me into research. Because if you run something that's even vaguely successful, people say, well, either you're bullshitting or you're, you're just lucky. And the only way to test it is, is to get into research. So I got into research. And my research has only been of interventions, pragmatic research, not. It's theory-based, it's not lab-based, it's not neurosciences, it's what we do and does it make a difference. It's what works in the real world rather than what works if you do it perfectly. And the reason I I guess you've come into contact with my name is that I'm a general psychiatrist and I'm not embarrassed by that. I mean, a lot of my work involves dealing with very ill people often psychotic people. So quite often I I compulsory admit them and I don't feel there's anything to be ashamed about that because the alternative is usually worse when you get to that situation. And one of the things that struck me over the years was that when we use compulsory inpatient care, the purpose of it is to help somebody get better so that they don't need compulsory inpatient care in the future. And you will probably know that there is a difference between the US and Europe in that we are probably still somewhat more paternalistic. We're not so fixated on autonomy as the only human virtue. We think it's important to intervene, to help people if we think they need it. And my sort of guiding principle is what would I do if it was a member of my family? It's not about whether somebody's a danger to the public, it's whether if they're untreated, will their health get worse? So there is a difference in context that I've been aware of when I've come to the US, that we will intervene, I think, significantly earlier than American psychiatrists would. Patients do not have to pose a danger for us. If we believe that untreated, they will suffer and get worse, we feel comfortable in compulsory treatment. So I've always felt comfortable with it. And for many years, I. I began to be increasingly convinced that given that the main focus of our work in psychiatry was outside hospitals, it seemed strange to have a law that only allowed us to use compulsory treatment in hospitals. So I became an advocate of allowing us to extend compulsion outside hospitals, okay? Because it seemed to me that the whole point of getting you well was to keep you well, not in hospital, it didn't matter how you are in hospital, to keep you well outside hospital. And to some extent, I think for many of our patients, staying well required taking the medicine, often for a long, long period, decades sometimes. So I was an advocate of changing the law to introduce what we call community treatment orders, and you call outpatient commitment isn't that right yes yeah so I, I i was a bit of an advocate of this and got involved in it and got involved in various government committees and when i was doing that i became aware of the fact that although i was an advocate of it and i was i believed it would work i had no reason for knowing it would work and actually there was no good research so when when we got the law changed in 2008 i got a grant to do a randomized controlled trial of outpatient commitment and we called it the octet trial it was based in oxford but it wasn't conducted in oxford it was conducted right across southern england and the reason i did this was because as i say there were only two controlled trials published both of them from america one from new york and one from north carolina now the new york one was a bit of a screw up so we can forget that i mean it, everything that could go wrong went wrong and you can't blame them that was at the beginning and i was under a lot of pressure not to do a random controlled trial because it's much cheaper it's much quicker to do a case control trial or something like that and i read the, the literature i knew that you could not get a meaningful answer any other way than a random control trial because by definition if you're being considered for a community treatment order uh, middle in our country you're really at your worst so by de- definition your diagnosis your length of treatment there's lots of people with the same diagnosis and length of treatment obviously somebody working with you thinks you are particularly at risk so anything other than a random control trial wouldn't work now as I say there were only two published trials and one was uh, Marvin Schwartz and, and Jeff Stanton in um, North Carolina Swanson sorry You know that study
0: yes this north carolina study that tom just mentioned a randomized controlled trial led by marvin swartz and jeff swanson is the same study that eric smith cited so i asked tom to help me better understand the findings of that study
2: well basically both studies what you do is you say we get patients who are judged to need community committal right and at that point we randomize half of them to get community committal and half of them not to get community committal. And we follow them up for a year, and we see, because in both countries, you can only be put on community committal if you are thought to be at high risk of rapid relapse and readmission. And so the obvious outcome measure is after a year, does community commitment reduce the number of people who are readmitted to hospital psychotic? So that's basically both studies did it that way. Marvin and Jeff's study was better than mine in one way because your your committal is done by a lawyer on a day. and it was done the lawyers for four counties just agreed that they would randomize them, right? The committal process in England is a process. It usually takes a week or two, and of course all things can go wrong there and we have to do the randomization at the beginning and things can change. So the difference between my study, um, jeff and marvins is that in my study there was a quite a bit of mess 15 or 20 percent of people didn't get the committal despite being randomized to that and some of the people who were randomized not to get it got it right so the, there was mess there there was none of that mess at all in the north carolina study if you were in one arm you stayed in it in the other arm you didn't so you could say theirs was a better study an advantage of our study was that we did it in 30 different hospitals and we had no exclusion criteria at all. Was the North Carolina people excluded you if you were considered too dangerous. And as far as I could understand, being too dangerous in North Carolina means carrying an assault rifle or something like that. But you know, so basically there was a bit theirs was a better study than ours. But the paper they published was just awful. I mean, it wouldn't be allowed nowadays. Because when you do a random controlled trial, the deal is You decide on a clinically relevant, important question. You have to be able to agree on what the intervention is, and you have to agree on what the outcome is. Otherwise, there's no point in doing a trial, right? So there has to be good clinical consensus that this is a worthwhile intervention to test, and this is the way to measure it. And you call that your primary outcome. And Oxford is famous for being very puritanical about this and saying you should only measure one outcome. That's what matters. Everything after that is speculation. And in some ways, that's absolutely correct. Now, in, in North Carolina, <laughs> they, they had a lot of variation in follow-up. Some people have got no follow-up. Some people got very intensive follow-up, et cetera, et cetera. But the really striking thing about the paper, and I I'm, 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 I'm scratch my head because you know, Marvin Schwartz is a clever, sensible bloke, and, and Jeff Swanson's very clever. I can't understand why they don't get it. They declare their main outcome in designing the study and they don't report it. They actually don't give you the figures. What they've done, I suppose America's a positive country and you want to talk about what's positive. It measured 25 things, found one thing that was different and published that. Now, a decent journal would not let you away with that nowadays. Nowadays, if you're trying to publish it in a random control trial, the journal needs to see your pre-stated primary outcome. And it has to be the first line of the results. The first line, not just somewhere in, in the midst. So they found no difference, same as us, bugger all. There was nothing to distinguish, except what they did was they said, well, let's divide them into those who got consistent care and stayed on their coercion for more than six months. So that's no longer a random selected sample. It's a highly selected sample. And any doctor will tell you that uh, people who cooperate, cooperate. People who don't cooperate, don't cooperate. The whole point of the community compulsion was to see whether you could make non-cooperative people cooperate. And they they produced this finding that if you stayed on on the committal for six months and you got three or more contacts a month, you did very well. But if you didn't stay on it for six months, you didn't do very well. And if you didn't get three contacts a month, you didn't do very well. So they divided their 130 patients, just the random community control people. They divided in four ways, so each group only 30 patients. It's tiny. But if you look at the graph, and I recommend you to, to get the paper and look at the graph, what you see is the line for those who do very well, the six months, three times on, they're at the bottom from day one. Now, if it was because you stayed on it for six months that made the difference, they should have tracked the non-six-month people at least for the beginning few months and then deviated. But they deviate from day one. It's a selection factor and what amazes me is that Jeff I mean he's had this put to him not just by me every time he presented in England people said exactly the same thing to him but look hang on this is a self-selected group this is a selection factor but they still they still present it so I, I was a bit dismayed really by that so the current evidence there isn't much evidence but there's only three studies and none of them find a difference so it seems to me that we need to do more studies or stop doing it. And of course, that's utopian, um, because in fact, people aren't going to stop doing them once they get into the culture. America uses them quite a bit, but it's incredibly variable, as you'll know, between different states. Australia and New Zealand use them non-stop, non-stop. I mean, it's just amazing how much they use them.
0: After all the, the research you've done, after all the work on community treatment orders, outpatient commitments, do you have hope for signs of improvement or what do you see the next step should be in trying to have this conversation about how we use these forms of treatment?
2: I mean, I was really disappointed when I didn't find a result. I mean, I'd spent years going on saying it's a good idea, we should try it. So I was disappointed. I also know that science is not perfect. Science does not give you certainty. Science just reduces uncertainty. And there are not many serious medical interventions that you would consider just three randomized controlled trials adequate to you know close the case and I, I my hope is that somebody will do a couple of bigger better trials you know i don't think they need to be longer i don't think they've gone been more than a year but they need to be three or four hundred people and without the mess that i had and with better analysis than marvin and jeff had so that's what i would hope
0: The conversations featured in this episode were with Eric Smith and Tom Burns. To end this episode, instead of hearing a psych ward story from me, we are instead going to listen to an inpatient story from Eric Smith.
1: So there was this one evening where they turned off TV in the common area and they said, "Okay, you know, it's time to go to bed. And I was just like, I remember I was sitting there like peacefully. I was just like, you know, I'll just sit here for a little while. Like I have some things to think about. And they're like, no, you can't stay here. And I said, I said, I'll go to bed in a little bit. Like, I, I just, you know, I've got some stuff on my mind and I'd really like to finish thinking it out before I go to bed. I wasn't being uh, loud that I recall. I certainly wasn't being a threat to anyone. So they had had a very long day as any long day is at, at a psych hospital. It's, it's always a chaotic place to be. And so they ordered a uh, code something. I believe they called it a code green where that means that uh, an individual is a, uh, Presenting is uh, problematic. They need to be forcibly medicated, usually to uh, a, a point where like they either become a zombie or lose consciousness. Uh, I saw it happen repeatedly, and this is when it happened to me. So as soon as they ordered it, where they were like they were like okay, like I heard it over the loudspeaker, they were like code green to the hall that you know I'm at. I think they called it Arnold Hall at the state hospital. I said code green Arnold Hall, and I was like oh I was like no. I said I'm not gonna I said I'm not gonna be a problem. I said I'll, I said I'll go to bed. Uh, I didn't know that me sitting here was gonna result in me needing to be, you know, forcibly medicated. So I told the nurse, I was like, look, I'm sorry, look, I'll go right to bed right now. She said, it's already been ordered. Once the wheels are in motion, there's no way to stop this. I I said, no, I'm telling you, like, I'll go to bed. You you, like, I, I didn't mean to like present as a problem. I just had a lot on my mind. I like, I'll go to bed. And I'm a male on the male wing. So they had, man, it was about five males, I'll say plus or minus one, there could have been six, there could have been four, but it was a handful of males that showed up and I knew all of them because they were the ones tasked with taking care of the males uh, there. I mean, I remember I saw the look in their eyes and I was, like, I was like, guys, I'm like, look, like I'll go right to bed. I was trying to tell the nurse I'm not here to be a problem. Like, please just like, let me go. I like, you won't have to medicate me. They're like, we're sorry, man. Like, we, we, we don't want to do this to you, but like, we, like this, is, this is the way it's set up. So I was like, all right, at the very least, I go, look, I'll take the shot. You don't have to restrain me. I've seen this done to other people. I know what it looks like. Just like, if, it, if you have to give me the shot, just give me the shot and then I'll go to bed. They're like, man, we're sorry. That's just not the way it works. They told me right before they said, okay, we're going to have to, we're going to have to all hold you down now, but like, just please don't fight back. It's going to make it a lot worse. So I was like, all right. So they all grabbed me and like held me down like five really strong dudes. Right. And uh, I, I, uh, they, they were, and even while, while it was going on, like I heard one of them be like, man, I'm sorry. Like, I, like, I'm sorry about this. And they shot me up with something. And I started to feel like I was about to uh, pass out. So they took me and they put me in a room with no windows. And they strapped me to a chair, like one arm to one point, one arm to another point, both legs strapped to the bottom. I couldn't get up with my torso, that was also down. And I was getting to a point where I was so drugged up and weak that I couldn't, I couldn't do anything, even if I wasn't restrained like that. It hurt so bad with whatever they injected me with in my rear end, which is where they did it, that, I mean, it just burned. And I remember a mix of like torment, of not being able to like move my arms. I had never been restrained like that, of not being able to move, I just had tears like streaming down my face, and I remember like I just I I, I passed out crying, uh, partially from being exhausted, partially from the drugs. And I woke up and I couldn't tell you how many hours went by. Eventually, they came back to check on me because like I like yeah I woke up and I was so strapped to this chair. And I was like, how long have I been here? They're like, you've been here for a few hours. They're like, we're like well, you go to bed, we'll help you there. Like these are the same guys. They felt absolutely terrible about this because they knew I wasn't a problem in the hospital. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't a threat of violence. I was never starting fights. It was never any of that. So they felt terrible about this. And so they walked me to my bed and like every step was a lot of pain because again, they did it in my rear end. And every time I put some weight down on that side, it just burned still. And I felt weak and I went to bed and I, and I got to bed and I just, you know, collapsed again, but, um, this is an experience that when I talk about it, people are like, yeah, but this what if this is just how you were remembering it? What if you were being a threat to others and this or that? Actually, I still, I, I recently talked with a doctor who was my psychiatrist there. She'll tell you, I was never one of the folks that was violent there. There were people that were like that. I wasn't one of them. And she knew, like, even when I spoke with her a few weeks ago, she remembered me. And she's like, yeah, you, you were never one of the violent ones. So the fact that the protocol was set up as such, where even after, like, Taking into account, I never had a history of violence. That I, as soon as I realized that they were escalating it, that I wanted to go uh, to bed, and that I wouldn't have been a problem for them. The fact that, like, I, I like even after I agreed to take the shot, when I realized they had to give it, and the fact they had to like hold me down, then they had to strap me in a chair. These are protocols that I question. I don't question the value of inpatient hospitalization because that was necessary to stabilize me. I question experiences like that as being necessary.
0: produced by Jim McQuade and Michelle Stock. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown.